Hi everybody, welcome to Reunions 2011. My name is Elizabeth Muse, and I'm from the Office of Engagement, and I want to thank Clay Crosby, student who's outside helping usher everybody in. Um, I'd like to introduce um, Karen Bonding, and Karen has worked as an investment professional in the areas of investment consulting, investment analysis, portfolio management, large pension funds, and the marketing and investment services. Um, Karen, for many years, has been an active member of the CFA Institute and has participated in grading the CFA exam since 1985, as well as worked on the CFA exam questions. She served on the Institute Standards of Practice Council and is currently the director of the CSPA Program Partner Initiative at the McIntyre School of Commerce. Professor Bonding was a visiting professor at the China International Business School in Shanghai, China, teaches investment management and strategy, and has taught some of the same courses at the Institute for Industrial Policy Studies in Seoul, Korea. She now focuses mainly on personal finance areas such as planning and advisory work. Bonding teaches at the McIntyre School of Commerce and is very involved with Madison House, UVA's Office of Engagement, the Institute of Aging, OLE, and gives personal finance seminars throughout the semester to faculty, staff, and students. I'd like to um, let everybody know that this seminar is made possible by Alumni Education Program out of the Office of Engagement in partnership with the Alumni Association. I'd like to introduce Karen. Thank you so much. Are you all having a good time? It's fun, isn't it? Nice to be back. I have to tell you that um, I've been gone for the last four weeks. Two days ago, um, I was sitting in my hotel room trying to catch up on some things, and I noticed that where I was, it was 37 degrees. And then I looked at where I was going, and it was also 37 degrees. The problem, however, was one was in Fahrenheit and one was in Celsius. Um, I was in Reykjavik, and it was just fantastic. If you have never been to Iceland, I can really recommend you go. Fabulously beautiful, but cold. Okay, so what we're going to talk about in um, the challenge of how we allocate our assets among various asset classes provide about as many solutions as there are pundits talking about it. So whatever I tell you today, you may like or not like, you may agree or disagree, because no one can predict the future. Everyone may be right. Everyone may be wrong. Think black swans. As someone said recently, it is really easy to predict, but it's pointless. So with that in mind, let me not attempt to predict the future, but let me attempt to come up with some rational proposals as to how to view asset allocation for various types of goals, various types of accounts, and various types of age groups. Again, I am not trying to give you the one and only right way. I will show you different ways of approaching this task, and you may then agree or not agree. The important point of the presentation, however, is that you must look at your asset allocation. It is not something that you can just leave to chance. Do not put all of your eggs in one basket is about as simple and as wise a suggestion as they come. Not that there aren't people who have done that, real estate comes to mind, uh, and have made a lot of money. But they probably have also lost a lot of money. But if that's you, and you thrive in such an environment, this presentation will be way too boring, too cautious, too wimpy. So you're forewarned. Now, if you're still in your seat, I will proceed. Let me begin by saying that market timing does not work. People much smarter than I have done a lot of research on this subject, and they say market timing does not work. We should pay heed. Remember that there were people that got out at the top of the tech bubble, tech bubble, sorry, but did they get back in in time to ride the upside? In our last downturn uh, in uh, 08, 09, 
Some people escape the carnage by going to cash. I haven't met any, but there probably are some. Uh, but did they, did they then turn around and get back in in about March, April of 09? It is a two-decision decision. It's a sell and a buy. So what we really want is restful sleep and not worry about our assets on a daily basis. You can put an asset allocation strategy in place. Review it annually, possibly every six months. It should not be any more frequent than that. So here are some ways that uh, we can look at it today. We are mainly going to focus on stocks, bonds, and cash, but we will also talk about alternatives. For many years, pension funds, who knew a bit about allocating their huge plan assets, had a 60-40 mix. That is, 60% in U.S. stocks and 40% in U.S. bonds. In some ways, the world hasn't changed much. Many still have a 60-40 split. It's just that within each of these two buckets, there's been a lot of reclassification, pardon my pun, as examples might be developed and developing markets, private equity, hedge funds, long short funds, market neutral, all of these are being placed in the 60% bucket. On the bond side, we got foreign sovereign debt, emerging markets bonds, high yield bonds, distressed bonds, and tips. So all of a sudden, we now have all of these options in the 60-40 buckets. So how exactly do we do that, and what type of accounts may qualify or may be large enough to take advantage of these many options? So let's first review the developments from our own personal investment perspective. U.S. equities expanded first into these categories, large, medium, and small cap. Then came the addition of the world, and it's pretty expensive. But how big is the total pie? The total pie, according to Standard & Poor's that I was able to find, was $35 trillion in May. Now, I didn't put the numbers on there, but you can probably see that the blue U.S. and the kind of orange developed non-U.S. are about equal. In other, in actually, one is 43%, the other one is 44%. Is that U.S. investment or world investment? Equities. That is global market capitalization of equity markets around the world. Okay? So U.S. and non-U.S. developed are about the same size. What, of course, it also says is U.S. is not half the world, right? So each one of these is approximately 44%, which leaves 12% for emerging markets. Well, when we have to look at our assets, how many may be brave enough to put equal amounts of our money into U.S. and non-U.S. developed? and then on top of that, adding emerging markets. So that overall non-U.S. exposure in our portfolios would be higher than the U.S. There probably will not be a lot of people that would buy into that. One thing, however, to consider is the following. When the dollar depreciates against other currencies, the return that you garner from overseas appreciates. In other words, it gets higher because everything is translated back into your own portfolio if you are a U.S. investor. Now, I'm absolutely not saying that you should speculate about currencies, but it is just something to know, uh, especially when we travel which I do a lot, when the dollar depreciates, it gets really expensive to go overseas. I 
think we can all agree on that, right? On the other hand, if we're investing overseas, we can actually take advantage of that depreciation, okay? So it's just something, again, just to kind of uh, bear in mind. Now, let's look at what the U.S. market in equities is like. Research has for many decades shown that small cap stocks, and I don't know if you can see on the right-hand side, the 500, which would be considered large cap, is 87% of the U.S. Uh, S&P 500. The mid cap is 8%, and the small cap is 5%. Okay, this is only out of the 1,500, and that was the best I could do under the circumstances, but the percentages will not change too much if you go to um, Wiltshire 5,000 or Russell 3,000 or something like that. For many decades, um, research has shown that small cap stocks over time outperform large cap stocks. Um, so rather than just buying the total U.S. stock market, which of course we can do either in a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, a lot of people feel that they want some overweighting in the small cap stock area. Some even feel that you should have equal weighting in these three categories. That's fairly brave, but again, uh, some people will... Um, indicate that that is the right way to go. We will look at some asset allocations later on, and you will see how there's kind of a middle way here. There may also be an additional granularity, and that is that some people want to distinguish between value and growth. So they will say, well, I want small cap value, as an example, but I want mid cap growth. So again, you can cut it finer and finer and finer. Now, let's look at the bond side. Um, it's a little bit trickier, but we do have exchange-traded funds at our disposal, making the task a little bit easier and a whole lot cheaper. So what are the categories that we should look at for our own personal portfolios? Um, U.S. Treasuries come in short, medium, and long-term treasuries, and then, of course, tips. Personally, I tend to favor tips. It's just my own personal opinion. On the corporate side, we have investment grade, that's the IG. Corporate bonds investment grade, that is generally A or better, A rated or better. Some people would say it's BAA or better. Um, we also have corporate bonds in the high yield or junk bond category. Those two are not highly correlated. In other words, they don't seem to move very much uh, in line with each other, which uh, some people would then say you should at least have some in both areas. Then we have non-US bonds. Uh, and then, of course, we have um, the emerging markets bonds. Um, Non-U.S. bonds in this would be mainly foreign sovereign debt. Last I looked, Greece was 26%. Any takers? Okay. Um, you could conceivably want a few more categories. Whoops. And here they are. Uh, precious metals, currencies, and commodities. We can buy energy. All of these are available as exchange-traded funds. I believe that one way to simplify the task of how to allocate these various assets just mentioned is to say and honestly ask ourselves, what is my money intended to do for me? Is it a retirement fund? that will continue to receive contributions, and my retirement is many, many years away, so that I can take some risk and take a long-term view? Or is this money that I need for emergencies or need to live on? 
or retire on, or you may already be uh, retired, or is designed for my children's college education, of course, at UVA. I believe it's fair to say that only if you can and you're able and willing to take the long-term view should you truly consider some of the more exotic asset classes and if the account is large enough. As many of you know, I think, uh, you must be an, an accredited investor to participate in hedge funds, in funds of hedge funds, and private placement deals. This means a relatively high net worth and a high income, so you all know who you are. Full disclosure, I sit on some boards of funds of hedge funds. What we mainly see in the types of clients that use our funds, they are family trusts, very large IRAs, public pension plans. So again, maybe an area that you may want to take a look at, usually the minimum amounts are very high, and, and again, you have to be an accredited investor. But many of the other classes that we've been talking about, international, emerging market stocks and bonds, high yield bonds and tips, they can be used by you and me. We're ordinary investors, and I think there's a very strong enough case to be made to make sure that they're all included in your portfolio. This is a simple 60-40 version from the Wall Street Journal on the April 18th. Now, you might be able to see the percentages on the left-hand side. And one, two, and three are U.S. stocks, okay? 25 plus 10 plus 5. And that's a total of 40%. Uh, now, what do sorry, small cap and REITs. So these are uh, real estate investment trusts, which are also always, uh, thank you, which are also always considered in the equity bucket, okay? Then we have four and five. We have 10% in non-U.S. developed. In non-U.S. small cap, which is a relatively new category, but of course it follows the same principle as we talked about small cap in the U.S., which have outperformed uh, large cap stocks. So we, here we have a small cap, and then we have the emerging markets. That's also 5%. So the equity bucket is 60%, 40% U.S., 20% uh, non-U.S., okay? So that gives you a little bit of a uh, uh, clue here. Is this actual or recommended? <clears throat> this is the Wall Street Journal, April 18. But is that what's invested or what they're recommending? That's one of their recommended um, portfolio compositions uh, using exchange-traded funds. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay. These here, we then have the U.S. total bond market, which would be treasuries and investment-grade corporates. And then we have the additional of 10% in the inflation-protected securities. Okay? So it's a 60-40 bucket, and this is just how it's split up. Again, you can agree that this is, yeah, that looks actually pretty good. It kind of includes some of the things that maybe I hadn't thought about before, uh, but it's in a nice kind of a balanced way, and um, you may well be able to sleep on that. Okay? The next one is a 70-40, excuse me, a 70-30 version, which is from something called the AAII Journal. That's American Association of Individual Investors. In my view, the best journal out there. I don't purchase money. I don't purchase uh, any of the magazines uh, that are generally on the stands. Uh, this is approximately 50 bucks, of year, 50 bucks a year for a subscription. They have an amazing number of fantastic articles, and there are no ads in the journal. 
I don't know how you would feel about that, but I feel really good about not having to look at a lot of ads. Okay, so here we have U.S. large cap, U.S. mid cap, and U.S. small cap. Again, you will see it's very different percentages than what the pie looked like, right? Because the pie was 87% large cap. So you can, again, you can see an overemphasis uh, on the small cap portion. Then you've got, um, again, 20% non-U.S., and then this one here is the simply called U.S. bonds, which would be the total U.S. bond market. Again, including corporate bonds and, um, and treasuries. Okay? So it's two slightly different versions. Um, whatever fits for you uh, is, is right for you, and I'm not telling you uh, which one it is. Um, if you are still contributing to your IRA or 401k, you can put something like these together. We visit it once a year, and then simply readjust your allocations. You don't have to readjust what's already in there, but you can simply readjust then, what am I going to do for the next 12 months in my allocation, and then kind of get back to whichever uh, allocation strategy fits best for you. If there is not emerging markets or high yields or tips available in your plans, then make sure you put them into your IRA. As you probably know, your IRA is what we call self-directed. In, in other words, you can decide what goes into the IRA. And you can choose anything you want, individual stocks, individual bonds, so forth. In a 401k, you are limited to what's being presented to you, what I call a menu of options. Let's, for the moment, walk away from the retirement money and focus on some of your other goals. Let's say you're in or close to retirement. You want to make sure that you have three years' worth of liquid assets to cover your expenses. Each year, once one year has been spent, you again readjust to make sure that you have liquidity for your daily needs for the next three years. That's the most important need you have. You need to be able to pay your bills. You do not want to worry about the fact that I think the market went down this week. I didn't even read newspapers for five days, and it was actually really nice, I have to admit. Uh, but one day I suddenly opened up, and it was like the market tanked. Oh, okay. I was glad that I didn't read. Um, but you don't have to worry about those things if you have the cash to take care of your daily needs. Um, if you wish to retain uh, equities in your retirement, that is much debated. Uh, but if you feel that, I would feel that probably a minimum of 20% in equities, uh, because those are the only things that can grow over time. The bonds give you income, but that's all they do, and not much uh, these days. For your darlings, uh, be they your children or your grandchildren, uh, and they're headed for uh, college in the next few years, uh, the Virginia 529 plan is one of the five best in the country. Um, look at the VEST plan. Virginia Education Savings Trust is what the name of it is called. Uh, even if you are living out of state, uh, you know that you want them to go to UVA, so you might as well get them one of the best plans available. There are tax benefits if you're a Virginia resident. Um, but other than that, the money is fully portable. They can go to any university they want. That's one of the benefits of having that kind of a plan versus a prepaid tuition plan. If you don't want to do that uh, or want to set aside taxable money outside of your 529, I'm a great fan of zero-coupon bonds. They're quite hard to find. Um, sometimes you really have to go search, or you can ask your broker to do a bit of work for you. Um, equity should be included. Um, the percentage for your children should, of course, depend, depend on the age of the child, meaning that 
the younger the child is, the higher the percentage. So I've shown you the 60-40 solution and the 7-30 solution. Now let me talk about an age solution. I believe it was John Vogel, he of Vanguard fame, who made this particular solution famous. Think your age. That should be your percentage in bonds, the rest in stocks. There's another version, think 110. Deduct your age, and that percentage should be in stocks. So you can see they're quite similar with just an ever so slight twist, okay? A completely different asset allocation strategy, which I found a couple of years ago, it takes seven asset classes, which is also a little bit misnomer because they're actually um, also split up. These are the seven asset classes. Equal weighted. How does that feel? That's kind of a really different strategy, right? Um, now, within each of these, in U.S. equities, as you can imagine, again, you have three categories, large cap, mid cap, and stock, in, in small cap. Non-U.S., you have the developed and the developing world. And then again, you can also put in some um, small cap, as we saw in one of the other versions. A real estate. Real estate can actually be had both domestic and non-U.S. Again, that's a relatively new development. Resources, sort of, again, we talked a little bit about the energy, uh, commodities, uh, things like that. Then you've got the U.S. bonds and the non-U.S. bonds, and then cash. So you can see this is quite uh, detailed. Um, you can start out with these seven categories and say, okay, I'm going to put equal amounts of money into each of the seven. Then how you then split up with, uh, within the top three or four categories will, of course, depend on you. And it does depend on certainly on the size uh, of the account. But let me tell you what I consider the best news of all. And I always like to finish my presentations on a very upbeat note. This, not just this here, but the other two, 60, 40, 70, 30, is so easy to implement. There is no excuse for anyone not to impl implement an asset allocation strategy, whichever one fits your needs. It can be done with exchange-traded funds. Now, many of you think, well, exchange-traded funds, you know, I've got to pay commissions because they trade like stocks. According to the Wall Street Journal, April 18, and these things evolve very quickly all the time, there are no commission exchange-traded funds being sold by Schwab, and I think it's 130 or something like that, so it's a lot of ETFs. Vanguard, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, and E-Trade. You can implement your chosen strategy by a few clicks on your computer. You can add, you could cut back, we adjust your portfolio within a few clicks, and it's all at no cost or extremely low cost. These are investment portfolios, and I want to make sure that I emphasize this. These are not trading portfolios. They're investment portfolios. If you want to do day, day trading, this whole asset allocation, of course, is not for you. And, and I wish you luck. Let's just put it that way. But, um, and this is, in fact, John Vogel, again, he of Vanguard fame, uh, does not like ETFs because he thinks it encourages people to trade. I agree with him on that, that it may. It shouldn't, because we're talking about investment portfolios. So um, is there, let me uh, first ask 
um, if there's anyone in here that are not familiar with exchange-traded funds, what exactly it is and why they are so beneficial in investment portfolios. Almost all, almost 100% of the hundreds and hundreds of exchange-traded funds that are not now available. Based on index funds, as an example, S&P 500. We're all kind of familiar with index funds because uh, they have existed in the mutual fund format for many, many years, right? You can get an S&P 500 index fund from almost everybody these days. They don't all have 500 stocks in them, but it would be a very, very close similarity. And if you buy an index mutual fund, you might pay between 0.1%, maybe up to 0.3%, or maybe a little bit higher. But that's sort of what the expense ratio generally would be of a mutual fund. Again, I sit on boards of mutual funds, so I kind of know what all of the uh, requirements are for mutual funds by the SEC, by rules, now the Dodd-Frank bill, and so forth and so on. And um, there's a tremendous amount of legal um, work that has to be done and completed for mutual funds. So exchange-traded funds can also be had in an S&P 500 format, but they're not mutual funds. So they don't have all of the regulatory requirements in the same way that a mutual fund does. In other words, you cut expenses. See the, see the difference here? And you can have I haven't looked uh, recently, but I would think 0 0.04, 0.05, 0.06 in that area uh, of the uh, U.S. equity index ETFs, okay? So they're even more efficient in that the expenses are lower. But what makes exchange-traded funds so incredibly efficient is that if you think of a mutual fund, and you think of a lot of people piling into a mutual fund, right? So it generates a lot of cash. There's a lot of cash going in. On the other hand, another time, a lot of people want to get out of the mutual fund. And the mutual fund then has to sell stock. That is not the case in ETFs, okay? Now, if a mutual fund sells a lot of stocks, what does that generate? Not only... Uh, Capital gains or loss, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and so all of a sudden, now you as a holder of that mutual fund has to pay capital gains taxes. You didn't have anything to do with it, but you have to pay capital gains taxes. This is not the case in an ETF. You won't have capital gains taxes. So they're incredibly tax efficient. I mean, you can use ETFs in any kind of a portfolio, okay? Taxable tax exempt, whatever you choose. But if you use them in a taxable account, it is really, really to your benefit. Uh, because not only are the expense ratios very low, in other words, it's cheap in that respect to hold them, uh, but also they'll follow an index. The very, very, in that respect, of course, they're pretty tight. Um, but you don't have the capital gains uh, tax phenomenon. Is there a reason why 401ks and 529 plans offer mutual funds rather than exchange traded funds? I'm beginning to see that some 401k plans are beginning to offer ETFs, but it had to do with the fact that, think of a lot of people putting in maybe $100 or $50 a month, and they had to pay the stock commission. Now that that has been taken away, uh, that are the five companies I mentioned to you, um, where you can buy a lot of these ETFs without having to pay commission, then of course the 401k plans could start including them. And I'm beginning to see a little bit of that round. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about tips and why you favor tips, TIPS? Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Um, yeah, no. Um, can I just get back to you in just a second? Okay. If you're interested in the ETFs, I will give you the website that I have found to be the best. 
and they list all of the ETFs. There's no discrimination about any that come from State Street or Goldman Sachs or whatever. And it is ETFDB.com, okay? So it's very easy. And it has, you can see in the middle there, the guide to ETF investing. And then if you click on this thing here called category reports, what you will see, I'm going to try to pull it down so you can see at least most of these. So you can see, I mean, just starting from the left-hand side, um, I don't know how many people want to buy California municipal bonds, but um, okay, uh, you kind of get the picture here. But uh, you can see in, in, for example, commodities, agricultural commodities, uh, commodities, metals, oil and gas, precious metals. On the currency, um, I'll just show you what just one of these categories look like. We'll just click on currencies. And what you will be able to see is they have three of them. They have one US dollar index bullish. You've got Australian dollars, you've got Canadian dollars. I believe there is also one for euros, but it doesn't show here. Um, if you click on, um, what do we want to look at? Oil and gas. Let's just look at oil and gas. Um, Oh, that's right. These actually don't show all of them. Here it is. View all ETFs in this category. And this is when you will now see, just in this category alone, okay, uh, you will see that it has natural gas, oil, crude oil, oil, energy, uh, so forth and so on. Um, you will also see that they will generally show the largest in market cap at the top and they go down and become very, very small. I encourage you to stay with funds that are, have been in existence for a while, um, that have some uh, history to them, um, but, but that's really all. I mean, other than that, it is really totally your uh, personal choice. Existed all of these funds? Well, I, right, yeah, I, I hear you. I tend, uh, the quality of management, sorry, the quality of management in these funds. Again, remember, they're mainly based on indices, which is not made up by these people who manage them. So, I mean, it's not a conflict of interest. Um, this one here does not have a lot of iShares. I tend to stay with iShares, a small i and then capital S, iShares. iShares were originally, is, is one of the very, very large groups, was originally started by Barclays Bank, which is a UK bank, sold to or taken over by, I think it was Wells Fargo. It was a California bank, I can't quite remember. But iShares are now run by BlackRock. They purchased the entire family of iShares. And I don't know if you know anything about BlackRock, but it is, it's the largest investment manager in the world, has several, several trillion dollars, uh, extremely well regarded, very high reputation. So I don't have any problems with when I see something called iShares. Um, this one here, because it's a little bit unique, um, let's see if we can find another, I can certainly show you another one that will um, indicate a lot of the iShares so that you can kind of see what it is that I mean. Uh, we can just take all cap equities. As you can imagine, uh, this one is huge. Well, it starts out right there with iShares, right there in the middle. See that? This is a Russell 3000 um, in the Dow Jones. Uh, Vanguard, of course, also has a lot of their own um, a lot of their own uh, ETFs now. But here you can see, you can see iShares, you can see Vanguard is up at the top. Uh, lots of iShares, uh, Vanguard's, Wilshire, and I don't have any problems with any of those. Vanguard, excuse me, raised a question for it. Non-taxable account. Vanguard also has a total stock market mutual fund. Yeah. So you have a 
one has a low expense ratio, and again, remember the tax efficiency portion. It's the same stocks. Yes. It's exactly the same stocks. It's just how you buy and sell them. See, the other thing, and I will get to your question, uh, the other thing about um, ETFs is you can put limits on them. You can short them. I mean, you can actually do some very, very interesting things uh, with ETFs that you can't do with mutual funds. And again, it's not a trading vehicle per se, but for example, when I go on long trips, which does happen four to six weeks, I go very, very closely through a portfolio to make sure that if I don't want any surprises when I'm not reading the newspaper for five days or a week, I put a stop loss order on so that if the market has a, like a um, October 1987 surprise when the market was down, I don't know, 12% or something like that, my stop loss orders will kick in, okay? And I don't have to worry about it. Um, very, very rarely do these things happen, but it is a protection that you can put into your portfolio. Doesn't cost anything. Not, you know, it's not like you have to pay uh, a, a lot of money to do that. And so, does that help you? Yeah, it would just go to cash. Yeah, it would just go to cash. So, okay, to the tips. <laughs> uh, Treasury inflation protected securities. Um, trying not to get political, it's difficult. Um, America is borrowing a lot of money, just like some of us did on our credit cards or some of you did on a, whatever. Uh, <laughs> America is overextending and at the moment I don't see that stopping and you cannot continue to print money just like you could not continue to use your credit card and borrow from somebody else and not one day coming to the reckoning that you're broke, <clears throat> completely, totally, utterly broke. And I am fearing the path that the United States government is on as far as borrowing money. That's my personal opinion and usually what happens or has in the past is that when you print money, inflation goes up. I'm getting, I think, close to retirement, although I have to be honest with you, I have the best job in the whole world. I absolutely have the best job in the world. If you have never taught a class, you should try it sometime. It's just fantastic. So um, I love teaching and I don't have any reason at the moment to give it up, but obviously the day comes when I will. And um, by having inflation protected securities, at least that part of my bond portfolio will keep in tune with inflation. Because if you think of buying a bond, let's say it gives you 5%, okay, that's fine. Every year you get 5% on your bonds. But if you all of a sudden up the inflation rate, then yes, the 5% will come, but it's worth less and less. And uh, inflation protected securities, they're government securities, so supposedly they're not going to default. Um, and they will raise the principal value and also the income value every year by the rate of inflation. So that's why I like them. They have the backing of the US government and they also have the addition of the inflation. So, and again, you can purchase them as ETFs in fact, there is now an ETF, which I also find very interesting, and I do use it for non-US countries and for China. So you can actually protect yourself against inflation coming from outside as well. Yes, sir. I'm a 62-year-old total novice. Okay. Who has followed a practice of benign neglect. Okay. Which has worked out <laughs> Good for you. My question is, how do I now find a really good financial planning advisor who's not there to sell me yeah. something? How in my community do I find someone like you? 
Um, yeah, that is probably one of the hardest areas. I completely agree with you because it's pretty black and white in most cases. Um, either you hire an investment advisor or a broker or some sort of combination of that, right? I don't know where you live, but they're probably available in, in, in your town. And most of these people, not all, but most of these people want full discretion over your portfolio. And they obviously love to buy stocks and bonds individually. So you have this, right? Or they will buy mutual funds which have loads. And so they will charge five and a half or five and three quarter percent, whatever it might happen to be on the mutual fund. And if you say, well, hey, wait a minute, it's my money. And here's what I want you to do. And then he will say, well, you either do it my way or we're parting ways. Very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. I was extremely pleased. I, I, I do have to say that I will not give the name at this point. Um, but um, I found actually an advisor here in town. There, Charlottesville, you know, is pretty advanced in many areas. Um, but I've always been very hesitant when, when people have come to me and said, you know, I've got this money, I need somebody to manage it. I don't want to have the hassle. I don't want to go online or, you know, some people don't want to do anything online, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're very good that, that you're even admitting, hey, this is not my expertise. I'm not interested, but I know I need to do something with my money. That's what I'm hearing from you, which is great. Uh, I have found um, a firm here in town. Um, from what I have seen so far, I would trust them implicitly and, um, and, and, and give them money. And they will do, they will work with you. If this is where you feel comfortable, this is what I would like you to do. They will charge 1% of your assets, okay? But they don't take over, if you see the, see the difference here. And, and that's the kind of people you want to work with, is that someone who is not going to say it's my way or goodbye, um, that will actually work with you. They will sti still charge three quarters of 1% to 1%. Uh, if uh, I have a defined benefit pension. Oh, you're so lucky. I'm a great employer. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you have a defined benefit pension expectation or uh, some, some reason annuity, how, do you, how, do, how should I figure that into the rest of my retirement asset? Right. Just a second. Just summarize the question. Yeah, well. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. Uh, this gentleman has a defined benefit plan. Defined benefit plans in the old days was just simply called a pension plan. United Airlines, General Motors, railroads. Okay? And we all know where those went. That's the problem. You were saying, and I think your words were, of course, I am protected. I think that's... Those were the words you used. It's highly insured. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, um, you still obviously need to save. And you still need to be prudent about your savings. No doubt about that. I mean, um, we can think of one really bad example in this country, not just AIG, but Enron. You know, Enron purchased a company out in Portland, Oregon called, I think, Portland Gas and Electric or some such thing. And here were these people and they were all pensioners and everything was fine and they were getting their income. And Enron purchased a company that was all fine and good as well. And all of a sudden, of course, one day the checks stopped. These people had never worked for Enron, probably didn't even know what it was. The pension was assured until the day it wasn't. Does that make sense? Uh, and, and that's the danger. That's the danger. We all know how underfunded a lot of pension funds are. Um, so, but, okay. Um, 
save outside and, and, and maybe make it a little bit interesting. I mean, you can, for example, go through these categories of ETFs and say, you know, um, maybe currencies, maybe commodities, maybe precious metals. Um, maybe there's some other particular, particular interest of yours. Um, and, and I would, you know, start small. Now, most of those will actually have a commission, but if you have an account at Schwab or E-Trade or something like that, TD Ameritrade, I think the commission right now is $7.99 or something like that. So it, it will be relatively small. But, but try it out. Um, the wonderful thing to me about ETFs, as opposed to buying one stock, is of course you've got much less risk. And, and that's another reason I like them. If you believe the, the, the efficient market theory, what do you say on tips? I, I, I keep toying with it, but if you believe the market's ability to see the future, then that's in the price of the tips versus their alternative of uh, treasuries or bonds. And are you really buying what you think you're buying, or are you just buying the product? Yeah, so the question is uh, whether um, we're buying what we think we're buying if we buy tips. Um, I don't mind admitting that I have been wrong now for like three years, okay? Because we haven't had any inflation. That is, of course, inflation if you think of the way that it is being measured officially. We all know about the gas pump. We all know about the supermarket. Uh, but the Federal Reserve doesn't seem to know about that. And the statistics, at least, doesn't seem to, I don't, I don't know if the price of the iPad offsets the increase of food. I, I mean, I don't know, but the, the CPI doesn't seem to have a lot of relation to the rest of it. Is that, is, can we be fair about that? Um, so you are absolutely right. The pricing of the tips right now does not indicate um, that there's going to be a lot of inflation ahead. But even on just an absolute dollar basis, yep. I mean, the market may very well price it or overprice it. So, yep. the kind of product that people are in demand willing to pay for, <coughs> and at the end of the day, you may have actually less cash in your hand. Yep. Yeah, I, I do not disagree with you. I do not disagree with you. And, and I certainly don't have a solution. But, but again, this is why any category. You know, some people say emerging markets, absolutely not. I will not have anything to do with that. That's okay. It still belongs in your portfolio. Put it at 5% because you don't know. Remember, none of us know what the future is going to bring. And this is why the categories that I showed you to include in a proper allocation I believe are valid. You can fiddle with the percentages, but if you don't put in emerging markets, think of it this way. How many have been to China or India or both? Okay. Is that where half the world's population live? Is that where the growth is? It has to be. So why would you not invest there? And do it prudently? Do it through a, an index fund or, again, the ETF types of index funds. It's where the growth is. What are your thoughts on target date retirement funds? Target date retirements have had you know, a lot of ups and downs, as we all know. Um, I feel a little bit about those. Um, <laughs> in the 08-09 um, downturn, uh, you would see the headlines, 401k plans don't work. What exactly was it about the 401k plans that didn't work? Nothing. They worked just fine. They were exactly like they were supposed to. The target date retirement funds, I feel a little bit like that. There is no one right solution. I mean, that's what we all have to kind of wrestle with. There is no one right solution. I do recommend them. I have a couple of former students here. 
I think they will wear, verify what I said. Um, I recommend them because I don't have to worry about it then. And especially when students come right out of college and it's one of your options in your 401k plan, just go for it. Just put it in 2050 or something like that. That's just fine. And just keep putting money into it. You're not going to lose it. It's going to go up and down, but you're not going to lose it. Okay. Later on, when you get more experience and you get married and you have children and there are other things in your life from an investment point of view uh, that become important, then you can add to that or complement it. Um, do some additional work with it. Um, in, in most cases, Tibor Price, Fidelity, and Vanguard, I think they all do a fantastic job. Um, again, nothing is perfect, but I do like them, especially for young people. Are you paying double expenses with retirement in time retirement funds? In other words, they're putting the money into mutual funds. Yep. Well, you are. You, you know, nothing is free. I mean, you can put a target retirement fund together yourself, and in, uh, again, with the ETFs, you know, you can say, oh, you know, the Vanguard, I think they use six funds right now. Oh, I'm just going to use their ETFs, and I can do that myself. Do you really want to? Do you really want to have the hassle? Yeah, I mean, you, it, absolutely you can do that, but I'm not sure I would recommend it. When you mention ETFs, are those always bundles or buckets of funds rather than individual funds? It, one ETF is a bundle of stocks oh, okay. or bonds oh, or currencies but, or whatever. Yeah. But it's almost like an index. It is an index. Okay, it is a, a group. group of, and it might only be 10 stocks. So you're diversified within that Exactly. Class. Exactly. That's what I mentioned to this gentleman up there is outside of his pension plan. This might be one way for him to maybe biotechnology. I don't have no idea what your business is, but you know, something like that, that you can choose an, an, a sector, just like the energy sector. Uh, I mean, there are windmills, or, or uh, sorry, alternative energy ETFs. There are water ETFs. Uh, you know, I mean, you can do some very interesting things with them. You mentioned a, a website that was interesting for ETFs, and you mentioned different asset allocations. Do you have a recommendation for one book for a non-traditional view of asset allocation and investment? I hear a lot of similar things from different sources, but I'm looking for the, the I don't want to say the word contrary, because that has a different connotation in different places, but where's the alternative? What's the other side to uh, a random walk down Wall Street or something like that? Yeah, um, like the, um, can, can we go back to the, okay, just a second here. And I'll do this again. In, and what I always want to make sure that you understand is that um, I am not selling anything. I am only recommending what I have found to be the best. Now, of course, I don't have my little pointer, but um, is it here? Oh, oh, for the, for the red dot. Yeah, okay. Um, right, thank you. I have, again, um, this is from the AAII Journal, and you can put in, I think it's AAII.org, not .com. I think that's correct. And this was their, what they called the moderate, uh, the moderate investment portfolio. So they would have one that would be stronger, one that, or um, more aggressive. And I just simply find that, that their material is about the best. I don't... I mean, uh, Burton Malkiel, who of course is the father of Random Walk, um, he and John Bogle basically put a book together that I like very much. It is absolutely as simple as they come. It's a little out of date now. Um, he has also changed his mind on one thing, which I'm very glad to see. He did not feel that you should be in non-US stocks. He feels, he felt, that you could buy Microsoft and you could buy Boeing and General Electric and stuff and you would have all the international exposure you wanted. Not in my book, okay? Uh, you need to be able to buy a Siemens. You need to be able to buy a Nestle. You need to be able to buy 
you know, Infosys and, and all of these kinds of companies. Um, so that's, but he has changed that. I've seen that recently. So he's, he's very good. Let's say you have uh, a collection of ETFs and you're following a, uh, an allocation strategy. You've got 10 or 12 ETFs. Uh, what's the best way, or can you recommend some resources for how you actually measure return? That's the big challenge. Yeah. So the measuring of the returns, if we have, you know, it doesn't matter if they're ETFs, it could be mutual funds. Um, one of the things that I've noticed on, I happen to have an account both with Vanguard and with Fidelity, so I kind of see the new stuff that they put out from time to time. And you will actually get a return. It will show you like the last quarter, the last 12 months return uh, of your total overall portfolio. And it might be your account, your wife's account, um, you know, combined account and stuff like that. So you can, it can show it all together. Because, of course, money goes in, money comes out. It's really difficult. You can't do it by yourself. So if you are with a company like that, and I would suspect Schwab, I don't know, but I would suspect Schwab or TD Ameritrade or something like that would do the same for you. Uh, it might be worth pointing out that the Labor Department exchanged the rules on disclosure of costs and that in October of this year, fund providers are going to have to break out all the hidden fees that they charge. And that will be a real Yeah, I, you know, I know. The Labor Department wants everybody to know uh, everything and all of these fees and you know, I'm old enough to have gone through when the 401k started in the 80s. There are always a few bad apples out there. And unfortunately, they're the ones that then make the government stay, sit up and take notice and say, oh, we better put some rules in. You know, if you stick with the major companies, I don't see any problem with um, information given to employees. I really don't. Uh, again, sitting on a mutual fund board is, is a real eye-opener. Weems. And I can get quarterly board books, and I am not exaggerating, a thousand pages. It's all legal stuff, and that's every quarter. Unbelievable. And it's getting worse because of the Dodd-Frank Act, as we all know, which of course hasn't, you know, the regulations haven't even been written yet. Costs. Completely increases cost because all of these companies have to hire more compliance people, uh, more accountants, more lawyers, what do they do? They do paperwork. There is nothing productive in the, in the GDP kind of productive um, measurement. We're just getting paper, paper pushers. I'm sorry, but that's, that's where I feel this is going. Not the right way. We're probably the oldest here. Uh, about to hit the point where I uh, have to take withdrawal from non-taxable accounts. Right. In reality, um, most of that will probably go to the next generation. What's the, what do you recommend for a strategy to minimize what uncle is going to take and it looks like it's going to get even a lot worse? Yeah, it's definitely getting worse. And of course, we're going to have to pay Medicare on those amounts of income and stuff like that. Yeah, okay. Um, what's the right way to do that? I don't know. Um, what we have certainly seen the last two years, and again, this is, in my view, an incompetent government, in that they haven't told us until December that we could take withdrawals from our IRA and put them into charity, tax-free, in December when everybody has already done their 12 deductions, right? I mean, it's, it's insane. 
I don't know what the right way is to do it. I mean, I mean the thing is, how do you minimize? Is there most of us come to the games, does not actually go in. Uh, so how do you? What's the strategy to minimize the uncle's take of that if you draw it out and give it pass on to the next generation, or is there a way? Not that I know of. Not that I mean, there are certainly estate planning. Um, issues and there are certainly some people here at UVA in, in Althea's department. Development? Um, Kate? Office of Engagement. Um, in, in whatever college you came from, whether it was a college or whatever, uh, that will help you with estate planning. I frankly, if I find people that have a few million uh, dollars um, and, and they're asking questions like that, I say give it to charity. I mean, what is Bill Gates and Warren Buffett doing? Well, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. I don't have millions to throw around, but I sure know that charity is the right way to go. That's how I feel. One more. Uh, earlier, you talked about the ratios of uh, equity and bonds and more that mix. And to uh, establish a, a ratio and stay with it, reevaluate it once a year. My radars are reading everything, and I see the national uh, state debt, I see increased energy, rebuilding Japan, and I keep saying to myself, uh, how should I reallocate my uh, asset portfolio to uh, get a larger return on investment? How do I ignore those impulses, or should I listen to those impulses and do this once a month, or you know, contrary to your guidance? Turn on the television and drop your subscription to the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> no. Um, how do I allocate my assets? Okay, let me ask you this question: Are you more concerned about high return? Or are you more concerned about safety? Because those two things could be different. Yeah, well, see, that's the problem. <laughs> it depends on what day of the week it is, what month it is. And, and yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it is not easy. In fact, uh, haven't we all felt this thing? Why did I bother reading the newspaper today? Because it was just all bad news. Have you ever had that feeling? Yeah. And, but you can certainly take the suggestion I did of um, take your age, whatever it is, and say, that's going to be my bonds. And again, you have different bond categories to choose from. They're not highly correlated. So you should have a, a fairly good, decent return, I would say, in the 5 to 7% area. Um, and then put the rest in, in you know, some index funds. That's what I would do if I were you, because that will give you sleep, sleep. That, that it would not make you sleep deprived, let's put it that way. Uh, that, that would be my measuring stick. Thank you. Okay? Yes, sir. Oh. <laughs>